0: welcome to the craft beer and brewing podcast i'm your host co-founder and editorial director of craft beer and brewing magazine jamie bogner i'm here in dania beach florida uh at three sons brewing uh with uh, Corey artanis the co-founder and head brewer of three sons welcome to the podcast Corey. cory hey, thank you appreciate it uh florida is a interesting and weird state obviously it's one that i grew up in and was raised in and uh, uh left about 20 years ago and uh, it's Always fascinating to get back here and see what's going on. Uh, Three Sons has made a name for itself, brewing everything. I guess the biggest name that you've built for yourself is brewing these rich and indulgent uh, barrel-aged imperial stouts. Um, But you've also uh, branched into uh, hazy IPAs and, of course, fruited sour beers, which are all the rage in this entire state Mm -hmm. uh, in a cool and exciting way. Um, but you also, and I've, which I found interesting, have uh, you know have a significant focus in your taproom beers on traditional German styles of beer, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't wait to talk to you about that through the course of the podcast. Um, pick your brain as to uh, how and why you approach those things in a way that makes sense for Florida drinkers and for the folks that you're making beer for. Uh, we're going to yeah. dig into all of that, but before we do, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GMD Chillers has set the standard on quality service and dedication to their customers craft G&D is committed to cold whether you operate a brew pub or a large-scale production brewery they're big enough to produce and small enough to care call gnd chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gndchillers.com uh, and on the roof here are three sons you've got a gnd chiller don't you Corey? yes we do
1: absolutely um it's been pretty good no no problems yet so It's been a workhorse, and the tech support is uh, phenomenal.
0: Well, all right then. Also, Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game with their premium craft juice blends. Whether you're planting a passion fruit Kolsch, Concord Sour, Mango Lager, or other fruity brew, Old Orchard can supply you with consistent product at affordable prices. Their blends are packed with real fruit and natural flavors with no added sugar or other weird fillers you'd find in knockoff brands. With the rising demand for fruity seltzers and brews, the time is ripe to grow your relationship with the right juice supplier. Get your Old Orchard sample kit today and a free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Nice. All right. So, Corey, let's talk a little bit about your brewing history, just to kick things off. As we normally start the podcast, we try to kind of map how you got to where you are today, Uh, operating, running, kind of creatively figureheading a craft brewery in southern Florida. Um, Talk to me a little bit about your arc in brewing and and whatever that brought you here.
1: Sure, sure. Um, So I guess uh, my uh, first experience in craft beer was uh, I was in the military stationed out in uh, south of Seattle, Washington, Fort Lewis. Um, This was in uh, 99, 2000 and uh so they had a pretty decent craft beer scene over there um at that time so i really was able to, to experience a whole bunch of different beers that uh i'd never knew existed or had before and um uh actually at one point my my a buddy of mine he was from uh sandpoint idaho and we went and visited uh his family and it was a pretty cool experience the uh his father was a home brewer, and I had no clue that uh, home brewing was legal or there was was even a thing. And so he brewed uh, German lagers and uh, we had like an amazing meal and his beer and marinated in it and with spices and the potatoes and the whole nine yards and there's like elk walking down the road. And it was a pretty cool experience. But so I knew then I was like, oh man, Home brewing, I definitely want to do that because I'm pretty big into culinary. I love cooking and so that was like really right up my alley um, so I guess uh, fast forward to uh, 2006 I made my way down to uh, South Florida here and Bought my first homebrew kit, which was an extract kit and I uh, Brewed uh, my first beer and my uh, girlfriend at the time House, which is now my wife, <laughs> and um, I remember the uh, uh, carboy was in her bedroom because it was the coldest room in the house. And uh, I made the stupid mistake of uh, shaking it before primium, prim- <laughs> primary fermentation started, and basically it blew the lid off of her carbo off the carboy, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So there's like a croissant and yeast all up the side of her wall and everything. So that was. That was fun. But uh, the beer came out good, which was most important. She let you brew there again? And that was, yeah, second most important. She's, she still let me brew. So, um, so yeah, so I just would brew for, at, at that point, um I was, uh, it was a hobby, brewed, um, and would brew for different family events, sure. my sister's wedding, made, you know, a, a bottle bottled beer for that, designed labels, uh, my children's birthdays and all that fun stuff, and... Um, and then I got to the point where I was seeking out more and more new beers, and just was like became consumed by by brewing and and listening to podcasts on the regular, and and buying every new you know home brewing book, and and um, <clears throat> I went to my first bottle share, which was one of the rules where you know you couldn't you can't bring anything you can get locally. And uh, except if you you homebrewed, you could bring your own homebrew because it's something that you know you can't get. So anyway, so I brought some homebrew, and the guys just like loved it, and they were they were surprised that I had that I brewed the beer. And so I went to a couple more, and and a buddy of mine um, who actually is uh, you know our lead bartender downstairs, uh, he was like, hey, you gotta you should like start brewing professionally. And so I started doing events. Uh, my first event I did uh, was in Miami, and uh, at a craft beer bar restaurant that uh, no no longer exists. But so, anyways, they, I, that was October twenty fourth, two thousand thirteen, and that was the first event I did where I poured my pumpkin spice latte, which was a pretty big hit. Um, and from there, I went to. St. Petersburg. My father uh, was out there um, with his uh, significant other, and they saw this place called Brewers Tasting Room, and they went in there. and uh, I don't know if you've been out there, but um, the concept of it is uh, home brewers who want to go pro. They have a small um, professional setup in there, a little steam um, brewery that was actually a, a one barrel brew house or one and a half barrels. So. Um, so my father was in there and he told the guy, like, hey, my son probably would come out here and you know he's really getting into brewing. And so they invited me out I, uh, to, to um, try some of my beer. And I brought my pumpkin spice latte out there. And at the same time, I had emailed the guys at uh, Cigar City because I was interested in pouring some beers at Hunapu and um, the festival. So I emailed them. Um, Justin Clark, who's the VP, he actually emailed me back, which I was shocked. And he's like, Yeah, come on out and set you up with our brewers, give you the tour. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know about Honopu, but we'll, you know, <laughs> whatever, we'll see. <laughs> sure, sure. And uh, so I went out, brought beers, met the brewers, and ended up getting invited to. Um, hunapu day to pour my beers at hunapu day um, as a home brewer as a home brewer yeah they the, the brewers that were there they, they tried the beer they went to they went and looked for joey so he could come and try the beer they looked for him a couple times and i opened up a um, barrel aged we heavy that um, that's like one of uh, joey's favorite style is like the uh, the strong scotch ales and um, mine too yeah yeah Pretty tasty. So I had a barrel aged version of that. They opened it up and they grabbed Joey. He tasted it. I asked him and he was like, Yeah, sure. We'll get you out here. So nice. Nice. so that was cool and, and um I brewed beer for Hunapu Day at um, the brewer's tasting room uh, several years because uh, you had to be you had had to have a distribution license sure, and sure. Had to be done. Legally. So, um, so yeah, so that was kind of how everything just snowballed from, from there. I just continued to pour beer at different events. Uh, other brewers I knew, we talked about collaborations and then I started flying all over and doing collaborations with some of like the best brewers in the world.
0: And, um, just, yeah, just kept, uh, get my name out there. And so, um, that is one of the more interesting kind of avenues into this world of professional brewing, you know, coming directly through that kind of homebrew and serving your homebrew and building a brand, really, as homebrew, um, and then being able to take that directly into the, the kind of commercial world. Um, but you took a lot longer to do that than some folks take to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Why wait as long as you did to uh, end up here, um launching a uh you know a full brewery with a pizza kitchen you know so full restaurant in addition to brewery um you know bring a a wide range of those kinds of styles
1: um there was (laughs) several reasons i guess the the first one was just really like uh it was almost like a proof proof of concept thing with me just going out constantly and brewing at different events and and venues and um and uh building a following and and it got to the point where it would probably i would say after um i think it was the third year that we had uh we were pouring beer at hunapu the first year we poured was 2014 and in 2015 we won um the best uh brewery and best uh beer for the festival that year and then when we went when we went back in 2016 and we won again we won the best uh, uh brewery and we won first and second place for the best beer of the festival, and, and these are beers you were brewing at Brewer's Table at the yeah, time. Yeah, the uh, Brewer's Tasting Room. Oh, yeah. Brewer's and, Tasting Room. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So that was pretty pretty wild, um, and uh, and at, at that point it was like my father and I were like, okay, yeah, let's let's do this. So yeah. we really really started getting serious at looking to, at, at locations, and one of the toughest things. Um, is is finding a location when opening up a brewery. Um, usually, it takes well over a year. Um, in Florida, it was even more difficult because, you know, we're pretty new into the the uh, brewery scene, and m- several cities that we approached, they didn't even have any zoning for breweries. So, you know, we would have to go and um, establish all this with the city, and and that was a process. Um, so, like Danube Beach, they had no zoning um, for it. But so, you know, and I had a location that I knew that I wanted to be, because, like, as a, a home brewer and beer and beer enthusiast, I would drive wherever I needed sure, to, sure. to to get good beer. So I knew I wanted to be in like the the crossroads where like the major highways, which is like in Florida's 595, uh, you, takes you east and west, and then uh, the 95, which is north and south. So we're we're pretty much right there. Um, the 595 and 95. So, um, so we were looking in specific areas. Uh, another hurdle with that is um, the the tasting room. We knew we wanted to have a tasting room. So, um, most of these zoned areas are uh, zoned for light industrial. So they're they're primarily like warehouses. And when and when they're building warehouses, they don't they're not the the amount of parking spaces that they have for these warehouses is not like you would for a restaurant you know it's like every 60 square feet you need one parking space and and warehouses it's usually like every 500 square feet you need one parking space so most of the places we looked at they didn't have parking the the lease was just like ridiculous there was just it was like one thing after another so it it took us about a year and a half to find this location Hmm. here um and we got very lucky with this spot because of the, a the location and just I love the inside, like the the vibe in here, and it's I'm really happy with how everything came out in here. So, um, so that was that was time
0: consuming. Um, Folks can't see it because we're talking about it, uh, you know, an audio right here, but incredibly high ceilings throughout the tap room, you know, 20 something foot ceilings at, at least correct me if i'm wrong Yeah, 30 30 yep right yeah, 30, you know so just years. a humongous big open kind of spacious feel um, you know and it kind of creates uh, and then there's layers to it into, we're on the upstairs right now there's even a sub basement kind of below the, mm-hmm. the main floor um, you know you have a kind of a range of space that uh, a lot of folks in florida don't end up with just because uh, you know they're not in this kind of facility
1: yeah. Yeah. And we're right by the uh, airport, the Fort Lauderdale airport. Right, we're literally right. like a, a mile south of the airport. So it's definitely a, gr- a great location. So once we found the, this spot, there was literally nothing. It was an empty warehouse. So we uh, we had to build, you know, which is much more difficult. Building from the ground up is retrofitting everything. Um, sure. Existing. And there was a lot of issues and this old, the building was built in the forties. Okay. So it's, you know, for Florida, that's kind of old. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, so yeah, so there was a lot of issues with just during the construction and, um, our architect wasn't, you know, no one had built breweries before. Like, so it was sure. like, it's all, it was like, right. so everyone it was kind of starting, uh, from the beginning. So, so yeah, so, um, permitting obviously through the city took, uh, a, a Fair amount of time and, and everything just like added up, so we signed our uh, we signed the lease here in uh, December of two thousand and fifteen and we opened up uh, i want to say about March of two thousand and nineteen Wow yeah, so it was a long a long road
0: i can't wait to uh <laughs> actually i don't want to hear any of that because that just sounds like a giant pain in the ass mm-hmm. uh, to get to where you are right now, and we should probably change gears and talk a little bit about the beer itself sure. uh, because that's what everybody wants to hear right now but before we do that the founders launched ss BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design performance and quality to the very highest standards of the industry with a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science mechanical engineering industrial design supply chain and manufacturing SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you'd want and expect from your supplier of pro-brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, did you know the breweries that serve food see an increase in revenue of 1.8x? Second Kitchen is a food tech startup that connects local breweries to iconic neighborhood restaurants to help provide your brewery with food experiences to keep customers in your taproom longer. Second Kitchen provides the technology support, custom menus, and more all at no cost to your brewery. Uh, go see them at secondkitchen.com I don't mean to say Corey that I'm not interested in hearing all the trials and tribulations no, 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 uh, that, no, no, no. you know from 2015 to 2019 that it takes to get a brewery up and running yeah. uh, I just think that we could probably fill out an entire remainder of an episode just talking about that. Yeah. Let's instead talk a, uh, a little bit about your approach to beer, which was that kind of marquee calling card, which was the thing that put you on the map, with uh, you know those festival goers at, at Hunapu Day, um, and that kind of led to this whole brewery actually becoming a viable. Uh, commercial entity. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you ended up making the kinds of beers you did, in particular some of these big barrel-aged strong beers, stouts, etc. How you found out inspiration for that, and uh, what I'm actually most curious about, as you were even producing these on a homebrew scale, um, how did you achieve... Good barrel aging results with small volumes of beer in generally small barrels i assume mm-hmm. um you know and what was some of you know some of that approach that was able to you know deliver beers that uh, of that kind of quality that were going to move audiences like this
1: um so i guess to, to start when i first started brewing beer i i, w- I would brew beer that I like to drink, which, you know, which was an awesome thing to be able to try to make different beers that you've had in the market and, um, you try to, to replicate. So, um, once, um, I would have to say I started exploring and, um, trying other breweries, beers who were making some pretty wild and unique things, uh, like uh, dogfish head was was one of uh, the inspirations back in the day um funky buddha as well they were making you know the maple bacon coffee and and the last snow which was like coconut coffee and they they had some really unique like gourmet style beers and and i really enjoyed you know drinking those beers and and using ingredients on that level um adjuncts uh that were not just like grain um and flavoring so so I I pretty much le- always leaned towards to make like designing and and uh, and brewing beers that were going to be more in like the gourmet and like you know unique and and different um, and different styles of beers that weren't like your traditional in the box. This is the style. Um, so uh, so yeah. So I always um, um, I always like to brew beers that like to challenge people in, in trying beers as well, which was, which was always a cool thing because certain people, they didn't like, you know, stouts or they didn't like a hoppy beer. And I always thought it was pretty cool when, when I could give someone like one of my beers and be like, Oh, you you don't like stouts. Well here, try my stout. And, and people, you know, some people would love them and I would send beers like trading and I'd send some my homebrew. And I remember like my pumpkin spice latte, um, was like people who didn't drink beer at all. Like my people, be like, "Oh, my wife doesn't drink beer, or I hate beer," and they tried, and they're like, "What the hell?" They're like, "This is, I, I can drink this, or uh, anyone can drink it." So it was always cool to be able to make styles of beer like that, where where really anyone could drink, and
0: the flavors were common to them, even if you know the beer and the styles were not common to them, and so. You know, human beings have these kinds of, you know, common... And I think the same thing can be said of, you know, the, the kind of Florida sour, you know, beers and tropical flavors. People understand these things. They have a nostalgic connection to them in some ways. Mm-hmm. Or they just have a familiarity which kind of speaks to them around these kinds of things and it makes it accessible for them. Mm-hmm,
1: definitely. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I, I got into making beers that were, like, very flavorful and rich and right. and um and unique um and then again trying different beers at bottle shares and really just like experiencing new um new styles um i remember the first barreled aged uh beer that i really had that that kind of resonated with me was um goose islands uh bourbon county um vanilla uh stout and, um, and I remember drinking that and was like, oh my God, this beer is like, un- this is like the best beer sure, I've ever sure. had, uh, 2000, maybe it was 12 at the time. Um, so, so yeah, so, uh, then I would be like, okay, well, what can I do to, to like, I would be great if I had one of these with coffee in it. Cause I love coffee. And I was like, so, um, so that's the kind of like the basis for summation was, um, bourbon county vanilla with coffee added to it um and uh so then the quest was trying to find barrels um as a home brewer you obviously we can't use a a full-size 53 gallon barrel um and uh i was brewing 10 gallon batches at the time five or 10 gallon batches um so uh, there is a small craft distillery in Northern Florida and, um, they produce what they call like a, uh, Florida bourbon. Um, and, and they were in five gallon barrels. Is this Palm
0: Ridge? Yes, it is. Okay. So, yep. So Palm Ridge was listeners to the podcast are going to be familiar because we, uh, you know, talked to Doug Dozark about the same, a uh, couple weeks ago.
1: Yeah. That was, seemed to be like the Florida's like avenue for, for small barrels. Yeah. Um, and they would produce some great barrel-aged stout. like the flavor profile that you would get out of those barrels were, was pretty great. Um, and it was almost like telltale when you had a, a barrel-aged stout that came out of one of those barrels. So that was one of the, um, barrels that I'd use and then I'd continue to look online and, um, I think Adventures at Home Brewing you used to buy a lot of barrels from, off of them they had like 10 and 15 gallon barrels so so it was just a matter of like finding barrels actually there's a Palm Ridge barrel right over there the little guy <laughs> um, so so yeah so then I would just uh, I would buy look for different unique um, unique barrels um, if I heard someone like through a podcast or whatever uh, that said that there was like barrels on the site or you get barrels from there i would like event immediately reach out and see if you could get barrels so um so yeah so barreled aging in these smaller barrels is much different than aging in in a larger barrel um you do get an extraction you, you know you get the much higher rate of extraction out of these barrels obviously because of the surface area ratio um, you don't get the same effect of aging as you would time-wise, though. That's one of the only, you know, difficult things with using yeah. a smaller barrel. You do get the flavor, so um, you almost would have to like age your stouts a little bit longer, and then put them in barrels so that they can round out a little bit more. From
0: uh, you know from a sensory perspective, how do you describe some of those effects of aging?
1: well obviously you're going to be you're going to be pulling out um a lot of the flavors of the oak so sure. you're getting some of the caramelized sugars in the wood you're getting you'll get some of the vanillin. you'll get whatever uh spirit that was in the barrel past you'll get some of the flavors of that as well um and then you do get some of the oxidizing uh flavors um and and i think that um the beer becomes a little bit more softer and rounds out. It's not as, as, as sharp as a stringent oxy, like a stronger oxidate oxidizing favorite, <coughs> excuse me, is uh, like, the like cardboard. You'd say most people, um, it's not that bad, but you, it's, it's a unique flavor. It's harder. I guess it's kind of hard to, to describe, but, um, the, primarily aging and barrel, um, for me always just, Gave a whole nother dimension to the beer complexity and allowed the beer to, to you know, round itself out and, and soften. Um, a lot of the beers um, that I would put in, obviously, they were Imperial Stouts and they would go in pretty sweet. So you have the alcohol that you're picking up in the barrel that will help balance out the sweetness. Um, you don't want to put a dry stout into a barrel. Um, it's, it becomes extremely boozy. Um, another thing,
0: what, uh, what kind of goals did you have for, you know, gravity going into barrels?
1: So, uh, originally when I first started, it was, I, my beers would finish around like 10 Plato, which is like ten one point zero four zero um, specific gravity. And, and, uh,
0: and it's slowly and it's slowly gradually. Boy, just, that seems so retro now. Gosh. Uh, yeah. Remember when we used to finish a 10 Play-Doh?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's like, people are like, wait a second. I, I start my beer at 10 Play-Doh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was kind of. Uh, and I.
0: That's not thick enough now. No, no,
1: Now It's now. That's right.
0: Thick thick with two C's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, now
1: now we're we're like. Around fourteen to fifteen Plato, which, um, and I'd have to do the, the math on that. But yeah, uh, it's like, one point zero six or seven or something like that.
0: Where do you um, where do you you know tend to start? You know to get to down there. I mean, I imagine if your goals are you know twelve to thirteen percent, and you got a fair amount of evaporation out of the barrel, you're brewing some pretty big stouts, even though to start.
1: Yeah. So, uh, most of our stouts, they'll start at like, um, 30 degrees Plato. Okay. Um, we usually like 35 is, is kind of the highest it, it, it gets for us. I know there's some people that, that, that go a little bit higher than that, but, um, that seems to be our sweet spot for what, what we do here and, and, um, the flavor profile consistency um, viscosity and that, that we're aiming for. So, um, so, which is, which is extremely high as, as well. Sure. Um, sure. But uh, um, yeah, it's all, it's, it's kind of like a whole balancing act, you know, which is one of the, one of the things that is kind of, is difficult somewhat when brewing these beers is, is just having the perfect balance of of uh, alcohol, sweetness, and body, and of then, of course, flavor. Um, so that's, uh, that's the challenge.
0: <laughs> For sure. Now, you've also, um, similar again, and I'm, I'm referencing this because uh, everyone who listens to the podcast has generally already heard the Cycle Brewing podcast. Like Doug, you uh, have custom built a brew house now in this new brewery that's built around these kinds of beers that you like to make. Tell me a little bit about um, some of that thought around uh, designing the brew house, specifically knowing that you make a lot of these kind of big high gravity beers.
1: Absolutely. Um, so Doug is actually a good friend of mine and uh, I learned a lot from him about brewing these styles of beer and specifically um Designing the brew house, uh, he definitely had a help, you know, a hand in, in that helping us out. Um, I've brewed over, uh, at Doug's, um, I used to do the gypsy thing and we've done a collaboration and, and, um, so, um, I'm pretty familiar with, with Doug and Eric's, the, the brew house over there. And, um, so yeah, the, our brew house was, we do the higher gravity beers and instead of having to do multiple mashes um, we are able to collect enough wort from one mash and um, and send it to our kettle without having to do a second mash so uh, the, the oversized mash tun which we have sized here we sized it to collect about 10 barrels of wort and the mash tun size probably is like a 36 barrel mash ton something like that so um so the aspect ratio of it is is one of the most important things is that you you need to have a specific um aspect ratio so our our mash tun is is just wide and stout and short and sure so, sure
0: so even with that kind of capacity it's not a vertical mash tun. again understanding what your mashes are going to look like mm-hmm. in that kind of mash tun
1: right so and, and it allows us to collect what we need to collect and um and we're actually you know since we've opened we've dialed the system in pretty good and we're collecting now like 12 or 14 barrels of wort for off of off of our mash which is great um so and then, of course, having the second boil kettle here, we have two boil kettles. Um, so after we we do our first mash for our imperial stout, we do not sparge that beer um, or that mash, and we we then go back, sparge, and we'll collect uh, in our second barrel, um, second kettle we'll collect uh, usually around 14, 12 to 14 barrels of a second running uh, stout, which has been we've got that down dialed down pretty good and we're we're collecting usually around uh anywhere from 17 well 18 to 20 play-doh wort. so it's off of your second runnings. off of yeah second running so it's pretty nice um those beers we've been throwing on nitro and um and uh we've We've gotten a lot of great feedback on on those beers, which is great.
0: Is there any consideration that goes into that beer design? Understanding that you're you know pulling a first runnings beer and a second runnings beer off of it, um, you know, in terms of malt selection, in terms of uh, you know maybe some of the kind of acrid character that the the really dark roasted malts can kick off. Um, any other kind of ingredient uh, considerations that have gone into? the overall design since you're not just thinking about it as one beer you're now thinking about it as two beers correct um
1: so what we do is we we don't adjust our mash for the first runnings but we do adjust the mash for the second runnings because the the first time that we actually took our second runnings the it came the beer came out like a brown ale so um so we served it as a brown ale and then the second time around, we ended up adding uh, some debittered, uh, like black malt or um, like craffa special or uh, black prince, whatever you prefer. But we would, we throw in a couple bags of that into um, the mash tun right before we start sparging just to pick up some color. Mm-hmm. Flavor profile, the flavors were there. It was just a matter of um, color because we wanted that to be a stout that we were going to have on. In the you know in the tasting room so
0: no that makes sense how do your say you know grist bills and and uh you know designs for these beers uh adjust with the ingredients that you're going to add to them you mentioned earlier that you're a big coffee fan uh you know and you know uh, for a lot of these beers they're getting a heavy adjunct treatment with uh, you know a variety of ingredients how, does that influence the way that you design base beers for these kinds of things, or, uh, or do you just kind of you know keep a, a standard platform from which to play with ingredients off of?
1: Um, it does. It uh, if it, it depends on what, what I'm adding uh, f- specifically for like even like the Berliner. We'll, I'll um, I'll bump the alcohol the ABV up on a Berliner if I'm doing a large fruit fruit treatment okay um because it just you know you're gonna have residual sugar you've got all that fruit and you know if you have a 3.5 percent berliner it's just not it it, it's gonna taste like fruit juice i mean it it already almost does taste like fruit juice but there's you're not gonna get much alcohol and um you know you're not gonna the base beer is not gonna come out as much once once you do that for me personally that's that's what i like to do um and then for for Stouts or beers that I'm adding uh, a larger amount of of coffee or if I'm doing like a cacao treatment, I tend to stay away from any of the roasted malts um, just because you're going to pick up uh, some astringency from the coffee. You're going to get some from the cacao. And um, so I almost like substitute those ingredients for roasted malts. um, So it almost would be like making brewing a porter. Versus, because it's really the the large difference between you know porters and stouts is just you you traditionally you add more like black prins or or um, black malt or um, you know or roasted barley and things like that in stouts so so I tend to stay away from those or do very little um, uh, percentage on on those and and substitute with the uh, debittered. Uh, for color because, uh, you know, they're going to provide a decent amount of color. So, um, so that's what I do for, for coffee beers. Is there like a
0: working math equation in your head for that? Or you just kind of wing it and say, yeah, I think a couple fewer percent of this. And then, you know, a little bit more of that. No, usually, um, I
1: mean, I usually do like maybe 2% yeah. of, of a roasted, um, uh, barley, I don't even use uh, black malt at all. I just don't. Right. It's way too astringent for me. I I just don't. I don't care for. I stopped using that a very long time ago. Yeah. Um. So, but uh, yeah, roasted barley is the only roasted malt that we use in our stouts.
0: Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about um ingredients you know uh, non-barley non-hops non-water you know the the kind of adjunct ingredients and the way that you add those you know you mentioned having kind of a culinary approach and a culinary inspiration for a lot of these beers um you know when you started doing it that was still kind of a, a fresh thing uh, there were certainly other breweries that were doing it but um this quote-unquote pastry stout as we know it now was still kind of in its nascent, uh, you know, formation. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you, um, you know, some of the the processes that you went through in adding ingredients, uh, figuring out how things work, um, what makes for successful uh, ingredients, what uh, was less successful, um, and how you've tweaked your process over the last few years of uh, playing with some of these big you know, kind of ingredients and big stouts.
1: Sure. So,
0: um
1: it was uh, it's all trial <laughs> trial and error, so yeah, you sure you've, sure you've, you first start and you, and you uh you go uh with with real ingredients or you get what you have at the grocery store, or you order, you know, something online. Um so for me it was it was uh it was trial and error um if I would use um
0: which is nice when you're brewing one barrel batches at a time. You can make a few trials and a few errors, and the stakes are pretty low. Exactly,
1: and I and I had a lot of that, and as a home brewer, so. But and I knew that there were certain ingredients that just didn't stand out, and they didn't translate the way that I wanted them to in the beer. Um, and it didn't matter how much or how little I used when when brewing the beer. So um, I always would look to you know, for alternative, um, options, um, what I found works, seems to work like best for, for me when I'm using a specific ingredient is I'll use the, some ingredients the the flavor will come across, but you won't get the aroma. And, um, so you really have, if you, if you want certain flavors to pop, the best option for me is using a small amount of extract to get to get the, the aromas that you want to get out of a beer. Um, so I, I just had to
0: gasp. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know the E word. God. It's only certain ingredients that, uh, that seem to constantly like for me, if, if I tell you, you know, the there's, I'm using an ingredient in the beer. I want it to come across as you know, that, that it's in the beer and you know, I, it's hard for me to, you get, you know, for something not to come across and you're like, Oh, I don't get any, uh, maple in here. or I don't get, or this doesn't taste like, you know, strawberry or whatever. So it's just certain, certain things that, um, that sometimes you, you end up having to use a little extract in conjunction with, with the real, um, fruit or spice to help, uh, make it really pop and, and, and come across as, as, um, as that uh, ingredient
0: they almost have different kind of expression modes you know where that extract is a almost primarily like aromatic you know channel where you know to get that pop in the nose that's it takes extract for that but to get that feel and the flavor and that kind of richness you know you go for the actual ingredient and it's this combination of the two that seem to produce the most kind of um, like kind of bright and intense character together mm-hmm. no
1: absolutely yeah they go they go hand in hand and and um like honestly if 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 uh i've always made beers that that i like and that i think people like and and have seemed to have some pretty good success with it and and um so it's it's kind of worked the you know the way that i've been doing it and
0: are there some coffees or some extract methods for coffee that you really enjoy uh, with your beers?
1: Coffee is definitely uh, something that I, I've prided myself on using um, from the beginning, just quality coffee. I always was, I, I really enjoy coffee myself. So using specific, like origin specific types of coffee, um, having a specific roast on, on the beans, um, working with like what does
0: that roast look like? You know, I know there are some that like lighter and brighter roasts. I've you know certainly talked to others that uh, are not fans of that kind of thing. Where do you kind of land in that spectrum?
1: For me, um, the light roast, just just after like first crack, is is where where uh, I really enjoy the flavors okay. of the coffee and beer. Um, and then, if you want the if you want a more expressive coffee like a traditional like you know coffee smell that you know if you just like walk into a coffee shop and you hit that coffee smell hits you in the face that's the origin that really uh, determines what that smell is is comes out in in uh, in the beer um, you have some origins where where they taste like uh, blueberries and peach, and and you get like strawberry and very unique uh, flavors. Right. And um, they're not as aromatic. And then you have like you know some origins that are that are just like your typical robust, like you know chocolate and and nutty and um, uh, um, aroma and flavor profile. So for me, that's 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 what I like like to use is uh, specific origin coffee, um, and work with some of the best, uh, coffee roasters, you know, in, in, the nation probably, um, actually I know, uh, our buddies in, in California going out there, Mostra's, uh, six year sure. anniversary, uh, is this, uh, month and they recently just won, um, coffee roastery of the year, um, uh, from a, one of the large publications uh, so and so it was a pretty pretty big award but and I've been working with uh, Mike um, for a, a long time for probably over I don't know six years or five six years or something like that so okay. it's, it's important to have to, to get your coffee fresh roasted um, to work with your local roaster our guys that we have here is Argyle coffee and and uh, manny makes like some of the best coffee ever and you know whatever i need if he can roast up a batch and and um you know specific origins what, you know he, if i'm taught i talk to him about a specific style of beer and what i'm looking to have he knows exactly what 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 goes best in in and those beers, or would work best with with the flavor profile that that the beer has. So,
0: what does that addition method then look like in the brew house for that coffee?
1: So, for us, w- traditionally, well, originally, what what I used to do is more or less just steep the the beer in the coffee. So I'd have like you know big like uh, muslin bags or nylon sacks right. and um,
0: ground um, or uh, whole bean.
1: Originally, I did whole a whole bean as a home brewer. Um, but then once i started buying a lot <laughs> once you had to
0: pay for it as a commercial brewer
1: once i started buying a lot more coffee yeah, and uh and like really really good coffee um i find the extraction from coarse ground coffee is the best for, okay. for me personally um and and uh and if you were t- is that time or a quality thing to it uh time is huge yeah um yeah again because you have you know more surface area that you're exposing the beer to um but uh also if you know manny is like a guru and and i talked to him about it and he's just like dude don't waste your time using whole beans it's not like there's a um almost like a, a skin or like a um a layer of the bean that prevents like extraction like you know and And he's like, it's just, it's not, you know, it's kind of Mm. like a waste. Um, so, and you have to use, when I was doing it, you had to use like two to three times the amount of coffee beans to get the flavor you would get from, you know, some ground beans. Yeah. So probably actually even more than that.
0: But, um. If only you could make some second use coffee off of that after you've extracted it into beer. We have thought about doing that (laughs) here,
1: actually. So we, so now what we do is, um, we recirculate our beer on the coffee. Okay. So we have like a little hot back and, uh, we hook it up to our uh, fermenter and then we'll, we run it and recirculate on the beans. And that extraction process usually takes us about, uh, I want to say six hours, six to maybe eight hours. Yeah.
0: So. Talk to me a little bit about maple syrup. You know, that's another difficult ingredient for a lot of brewers to use. Obviously, it ferments out pretty quickly. Um, It's hard to get some residual flavor off of that, you know, even though everyone knows what maple flavor is. And so, you know, using the actual ingredient can be a challenge. And, you know, and yet the extracty kind of approach tends to, you know, can go the other direction and just feel not real. Um, Talk to me about getting good results using kind of maple syrup as an ingredient so yeah maple syrup is has been a tricky one Um, and i'm just asking is you've got lumberjack day coming up here for the brewery with uh you know and you've you've got a a prominent beer that's well known and respected that uses the both that and coffee as an ingredient
1: yes yes um yeah so lumber so maple's maple's a tough one um uh as a home brewer uh i used to add you know, like a quart of maple syrup to five gallons, and then, you know, dub, you know, would double it, and it got to the point where I, where it was like, a gallon of maple syrup and five gallons of, of beer, and it was just like, it. It seems can, like
0: your gravity's way out of whack and something like that.
1: Yeah, it, depending on when you add it, obviously you you're gonna ferment out. Um, it's highly fermentable, so you sure. ferment out the sugars. Um, which will in turn scrub out a lot of the flavor of the maple um, but uh, the maple is something also that I like to use where I will use some of it um, I just released uh, even more lumberjack was which was a collaboration I did with Yeppa from evil Twin and um, that beer we ended up uh, adding the maple syrup in secondary so... The beer basically was completely done being fermented. We had cold-crashed it and um, dropped yeast out and then added added about, I think it was 40 gallons of maple syrup in uh, 200 gallons or 210 gallons of beer. So it was a ridiculous amount of maple syrup. And then we transferred that um, into bourbon barrels and let that sit for almost two years in barrels. And it you get a lot of, it's, it's extremely sweet, and it's very decadent, and it's like definition of pastry stout. Um, we did add um, a large amount of coffee, um, and Brazilian coffee, which is a very chocolate, you know, it's got beautiful flavor, pairs perfectly with, with this style. So, um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's extremely sweet. So that's one way of trying to do it, The thing is that if you if you're looking for pure maple syrup flavor or if you're looking for like aunt jemima's and log cabin flavor maple syrup which i think probably most of us grew up on i'm i know i didn't have a whole lot of like real maple syrup in my childhood (laughs) so the nostalgia of that aroma and that smell which is almost like that buttery rich and which doesn't smell anything like real maple syrup right, right. Um, you have to use extract to get that so you know you can go you can go another route and um, and use extract as well and um, and in conjunction with using some maple syrup so you do you, you retain some of the sweetness and you have some of the maple and and um, and then that extract will get you get you the nose on on uh, on the beer but so it's yeah, the maple maple's a tricky one. It just, it's it's really, um, depends on which way you want to, which way you want to go.
0: Are there any other uh, interesting ingredients that you really enjoy using in stouts that you find, uh, you know, just kind of create an unexpected joy in these big beers?
1: Vanilla, I think is, vanilla beans are, are pretty amazing. Um, I really love what vanilla beans do. They're extremely expensive, but they're worth it and if you you use them properly too you can get a little bit more extraction out of them like we do we recirculate on our vanilla beans as well um
0: what's your processing look like are you scraping them out are you chopping them up what's the uh
1: so yeah we end up um slicing the beans in half okay that's all we do so we just we'll just like slice them completely in half and then uh we don't scrape any of the caviar out or anything like that um after we cut them in, in half we end up uh we throw them in a um in a ziploc bag and sanitize them and some people even
0: do that with sous vide, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh which is a pretty cool and uh, um unique way to do it. Um but uh and then we'll throw them in our hotback in a nylon bag that's been sanitized and we'll recirculate on them and we usually we usually get extraction in about 72 hours which is which is pretty good yeah so um but yeah so vanilla beans what kind of
0: temperature do you keep the beer at for this kind of thing
1: for the for the vanilla beans you want it warmer okay because uh the warmer something is you're going to extract more flavor Sure, sure coffee beans you want it colder Because you'll start pulling out some green pepper and astringency out of the coffee beans. Uh, So usually we'll, after we transfer the beer from fermenter into bright tank for the vanilla beans, the beer will probably be at around 60 degrees. And then for the coffee, we crash it down to the low 30s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's very important. Some people don't. They, They age the... Beer on coffee, room temperature. And, you know, I mean, sure, sure. cold brew is made that way, room temperature. So, yeah. um, you know, it just depends on what you like to do, you know?
0: <clears throat> no, no, it does. I mean, that's interesting that you'd, you'd grind it, but then you, you know, condition it in an extremely cold temperature. And it looks like, you know, you're balancing in a different direction than the way that other people balance. And that's, uh, if it works for you, it works for you yeah I think
1: we just we, we pull out um more of the pure flavor of, of the coffee and yeah and uh my experience is, is that um I do not have as as uh I don't get the off flavors that I normally taste in other beers
0: so sure sure um before we get out of here, I want to talk to you a little bit I mean we've now talked about stouts for a long while um but I really want to talk about uh your approach to german beers also mm-hmm. found it fascinating that uh, you've got not not just one not just two but i think at least four different german styles you know from uh uh you know of uh lagers and more uh and lagers and ales for that matter mm-hmm. and have kind of made sure that there is the, the there are these historical kind of brewing styles uh from that german brewing to tradition here for sale in your tap room in addition to the kind of hot, heavily hopped double IPAs, single IPA, hazy IPAs, in addition to these kind of pastry-forward, big, flavorful stouts, and in addition to the kind of heavily-fruited, you know, sour, kettle-sour beers. Um, Talk to me a little bit about why that is, you know, where, uh, uh, why balance in that kind of way, and what is it, uh, you know, is there a market for that, is that just a philosophical thing that says hey we want to make drink these beers and we're going to make these beers uh you know what's the what's the reasoning behind that
1: there's a lot of that uh you know we've we've been able to brew a beer that we like to drink and um so uh as a brewer i find uh pilsners and and other uh lagers to be extremely crushable and enjoyable and um and I think also that uh, there seems to be a little bit of a trend that m- is moving into uh, uh, pilsners and loggers uh, in the craft beer community. Um, every beer fest that I go to, we all—all all of the brewers were all like, "Okay, who brought the pilsner? Sure, sure. Where's the lager at?" Uh, you can, you know, you can only drink so much. Uh, There's IPA. a reason they
0: invite uh, Bierstadt Lagerhaus to Hunupu Day now, right? Just, is- just so the brewers have something to drink.
1: Exactly. So that's that. and then for Lumberjack Day. <laughs> Um, I've asked, I've asked every brewery to bring a session beer, um, something that's like crushable, a lager or something that they're really proud of, uh, which is, we, we did not have that, um, uh, last year. So last year it was like the average beer probably was like 10% ABV or something. It was, it was, there was a lot. Um, so and it's nice to be able to, to, to break up your palate and, and try some sessionable beers. And, and a lot of people are making some really, really good ones. So, um, but yeah, so we like to drink them. Um, uh, almost more importantly, our, our guests like to drink them. You know, Dania beach is, 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 a is the, actually the oldest town in Broward County. It was founded in uh, the early 1900s. And, um, so we, uh, you know we have a, a pretty large uh, um uh, local community here that 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 come in and and um so and a lot of them love love our our pilsner our red ale our vienna lager um you know so so we get to make them too which is great you know a lot of people they they're jealous <laughs> because they're they they couldn't sell you know a pilsner in their tasting room or they couldn't sell like a red ale in their tasting room or a vienna lager so um so th- it's pretty nice to be able to have that we do have a lot of like europeaners that travel here you know obviously florida being a huge um tourist uh industry um so we 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 definitely get a lot of that as well but um so yeah so we we um we get to make uh, some of these unique styles and then of course just uh Coming off of uh, Oktoberfest and September, we um, we we did a couple unique beers for that. So uh, so it's been fun. You know, we like we like to uh, not only brew for ourselves but brew for people and and um, that that come in and and uh, enjoy good easy drinking beers. Well,
0: I guess it makes it simple when you have a, a potential new customer that walks in and says, well, I really like Bud Light. I really like oh, yeah. Light Lager. You know, I'm like, oh, we got one a beer for you. you yep. know, it makes it a very simple. Uh, Absolutely.
1: yeah, That's great. Yeah. We've, we've done a Mexican lager in the past as well, and um, I foresee us doing a lot more um, lagers in the future. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fun, and
0: they taste great sure sure so looking forward into the future for three sons what what does success look like for you when will you know that you've achieved the success that you set out to achieve
1: i don't think that uh that that point in your life should ever come <laughs> um you know uh i think you should definitely uh constantly strive and and try to do new things and and um I know for myself, uh, I, um, I'd love to, um, get into distilling, um, even, uh, making meads as well, wine. Um, so I don't know, uh,
0: success. Yeah. It's, um, you think as soon as you achieve it here in the beer world or whatever you deem that to be, that you're going to find something else to be, you know, to create that challenge for you just so you keep striving towards something.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if, if I'll ever feel that way that I've like achieved success. I think, you know, it'll it'll just be, um, I'll be happy with, with, uh, with things here and, and then want to do something somewhere else or, or get into something else or maybe open another brewery somewhere else or, you know, it'll just be, it'll be constant, you know? Um,
0: just a restless creativity and uh and curiosity that can never fully be uh, satiated
1: yeah yes exactly just uh one thing after another after another hopefully if i'm lucky
0: <laughs> it does not sound very restful
1: no well you you find time and and uh you know it's a passion you enjoy doing things and it's kind of uh you know i brewed home brewed for you know 13 years and then finally was uh able to open up my own brewery was kind of uh interesting to be able to to get paid for your hobby at so it's 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 been it's been fun it's been a long crazy road and a lot of work but um yeah i definitely would just uh i don't foresee myself uh resting um anytime soon and so
0: fair enough fair enough if uh if people want to learn more about three sons, where do they find you out on the internets and, and in real life
1: um so yeah we're here i'm i'm i work six days six days a week here at the brewery so uh, you can come out to Dania beach and um, share a share a beer and or um, you can uh, shoot me an email it's Corey, c o r e y at threesunsbrewingco.com is my email so more than happy to talk with anyone about recipe development designs uh any questions on barrel aging or you know using adjuncts i'm i'm an uh, an open book
0: well i we appreciate you talking to us about it today Corey. yeah absolutely yeah. thanks
1: yeah. for coming on i appreciate you being here and and your interest and in everyone.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. Before we get out of here, GND Chillers sets the standard for quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game. SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you demand from your supplier of pro-brewing equipment. And Second Kitchen helps keep customers in your taproom longer. If you've enjoyed this uh, podcast, please go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button and become a magazine subscriber we'd appreciate your support and you'll hear more about Corey and other brewers like him uh, making some of the best craft beer in the world today and uh you know who knows maybe we can even get Corey to share a homebrew recipe with us one of these days uh, again thanks for joining me on the podcast Corey.
1: absolutely no thank you for having me cool cheers cheers